proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Chris Santola, and I am here with my co-hosts today, Aaron Carr and Zach Fisher. What's going on, you guys? Not much, man. How are you? Hey, guys. Dude, I am doing great. Living the dream. <laughs> you say that every week. I feel like you live in... Do you live in a dream world, or are you just... You just got a good life. <laughs> you know, I think I like to say that, because like, if you knew the area where I was from... Nobody thinks they're living the dream. You're in like the parched desert wasteland. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> like, you know, more like a nightmare. And so uh, <laughs> I've been here my whole life. So I'm just kind of like, hey, this is what I know. And uh, so when I tell people that it always throws them off because they give me this funny look like, uh, man, is, is he serious or is he being sarcastic? And so I, I just have some fun with it. You know, I just think of uh, California as the epitome of surfboards, long, sandy blonde hair, and blue eyes, and that's not you at all, Chris. No. No, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> if you have not seen a picture of our co-host, please Google him on Facebook or whatever they call, call that, because he is one ugly mug. <laughs> <laughs> I have a face made for radio. <laughs> not that my face is much better. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think uh, Zach's the pretty boy out of all three of us. Oh, I don't know about that. My wife thinks so, so I guess that's all that counts, right? Yeah, that's that's all that it counts. That is what counts. That's all I care about. I got to say this, though. I definitely take it on the uh, the beard side of things. I mean, we're all three rocking, you know, very handsome beards, Absolutely. I must say. But but uh, I, I think I'm going to have to go ahead and claim the... Uh, the the major beard. Oh yeah, you have like the the mean biker beard. I've got the full on old Rasputin like <laughs> major beard going you got, on. You got the Russian imperial beard. The the Russian imperial beard. <laughs> there you go. Hey, speaking of beards, we need to give a shout out to our friend. We need to give a big shout out to Scott Anderson from 1689 because he has sent us a beard product and T-shirts and coffee, and so he's supporting us with the. The daily needs of a reformed gospel man with uh, shirts and coffee and beard product. And so we want to give a shout out to him and we appreciate him uh, shooting us all that stuff. It's awesome stuff. And uh, if you guys don't know, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you know what 1689 beard is. But if you don't, you should check it out. There's an Etsy shop and uh, he's got some great stuff there. But that's not all he's into. Uh, one of the things he's also passionate about is church planting and specifically yeah. the rural context. And that's, uh, that, that's kind of near and dear to my heart. So, um, he's passionate about that as well. Yep. Very cool stuff. Well, I got kind of a crazy, uh, crazy little story. It didn't happen to me personally, but I heard a crazy interview this week. If you guys want to hear it, bring it on. Okay. So I was listening to this interview of this person. He's an author and he wrote this book. And as soon as I say the title, everyone's going to either shut me off mentally or they're going to be super into it. So just 
I'm in the middle of the road, so I'm not a fanatic. But this book is called Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. And then there's like a long, like a subtitle. And this guy collected like these reports from like the 1800s all the way through like the 1920s. And here, here's the odd thing, because obviously we're going to rule out us three. We're going to rule out like some evolutionary half man, half ape. So that's not a thing. Right. But there was a slew of reports over the span of, I don't know, like 30, 40 years, I guess, of wild gorillas, quote unquote, roaming in Pennsylvania. And these farmers saw them. They stole some of their uh, like livestock and they ruined some of their like outbuildings and stuff. And so we don't have native gorillas in North America. So I'm not sure what this is about, but these were like bona fide newspapers reporting on uh, wild gorillas or some people just call them wild men that were super hairy, like wreaking havoc between like the late 1800s and the early 1920s. So I have no idea what that's about. Now, when you say you're in the middle on this, does that mean you take this stuff legitimate? Okay, so here's where I'm at. I don't think that there is any kind of half man, half ape, but... These are newspapers that saw some kind of weird animal. I mean, there is some weird animal that did this. So I say it's either some kind of animal or it's a crazy guy. There's, there can't be a middle ground there. Well, let me go ahead and just say I wasn't born until 1978, and I've never <laughs> been to Pennsylvania. So it wasn't Wild Chris? It was not Wild Chris. Just, you know, <laughs> it wasn't just some, you know, bearded dude out there living in the trees. It could have been a bearded... I mean, if someone saw you swinging from a tree, I could definitely see them mistake that for a Sasquatch, for sure. You really want to believe this, don't you, Zach? I, a little bit. A part of me just wants to think that it's true. <laughs> we want to get uh, one of those I shirts that says, I want to believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, actually... So, so that's where I'm at. Was, do you ever watch Ancient Aliens? <laughs> no, all I know is the meme. You guys, the listeners can't see my hands, but you know the crazy hair meme guy that's like... Whatever, but yeah. Yep. <laughs> you guys, I'm just amazed right now that there that there is like this belief that there is actually Bigfoot out there. Hey, I'm not saying there's a, like I said, it's not some half-breed craziness, but there's something stealing these people's sheep, all right? And it's in a newspaper, so it's got to be true. So I, There was a while back I was watching this show, like the search for Bigfoot or something. It was amazing just watching these guys going out there. And they're doing like these calls, you know, like screaming out into the forest and like, you know, knocking on trees with rocks and all this stuff. And it's funny because every show, I mean, this just goes to show like where I'm at. It's like every show you're watching and you're like, I wonder if they're going to find him. But then you think to yourself, you're like, of course they're not going to find him. <laughs> but, but isn't just, that isn't that guys just LARPing, live action role playing? I mean, come on, is oh, that dude, isn't that's it, come totally on. what it is? That's yes. exactly totally they're what it is. They're reliving these fantasy worlds where they get to be whatever character they want. And uh, when I became a man, I put away childish things. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. It's like watching Scooby Doo, except they never find out who it was. So it's actually not even as serious as Scooby-Doo. It's less real than Scooby-Doo. <laughs> less real than Scooby-Doo. At least the old school Scooby-Doo. Because in the new school Scooby-Doo, they have, uh, you know, like there's our real monsters. That's one of the things I always loved about the uh, old school is, you know, you have to pull off the, the mask. And if it wasn't for you meddling kids. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's good stuff, Zach. I, I'm, uh, I'm encouraged to uh, know that your faith is pretty broad. Not only, now, not only do you have enough faith to be a Baptist, you have enough faith to believe in Bigfoot. 
<laughs> I won't tell you that I uh, I purchased a book of all these reports as well, because then I know you'll never let me live it down. <laughs> uh, anyway. Woo. Zach's like, oh, all right, moving along. <laughs> so when does the book arrive? Uh, Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> uh, He's thinking right now, I immediately regret the decision of bringing this up. <laughs> That's I think right. we need to have a whole episode just exploring Zach's thoughts. I think that's this episode, <laughs> apparently, because we're like 12 minutes in oh, here. Oh, man. Let's, let's get to our topic. Uh, we are covering a Chapter 14 of the Westminster on saving faith. And uh, Chapter 14 has a lot to say. We're going to be going back to the Westminster and kind of walking through that. But I think to kind of summarize and get us to this place where Chapter 14 makes sense in light of everything else we've been talking about, we could just uh, use Shorter Catechism Question 30, which asks this question, How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Um, The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So the centerpiece to this is faith. And it's interesting when we use the word faith, um, specifically looking in Scripture, it can mean a lot of different things in the sense of sometimes it's talking about uh, orthodox truth, uh, the whole system of what one believes. But here the the Westminster specifically uh, focuses on saving faith, and we're going to get into um, very specific detail of, of what that means or specifically the object of this faith, which should be no surprise to our listeners that it's Christ. Um, that he is the object of faith. But let's talk a little bit about how this whole thing of faith um, operates and works. So when we talk about uh, saving faith, I guess we could, we could really just jump in into the deep end and, and begin by, by focusing on the fact that saving faith is, um, is, is, is the work of the Holy Spirit, right, guys? It, it's, it's the work of the yeah. Holy Spirit. What verses or what maybe passages of Scripture come to mind that support that teaching right off the bat so we can assume that? Well, when I think about, I didn't even, I didn't think about this ahead of time just until just now, but when I think about John 3, you know, everybody jumps to John 3, 16. But before that, you've got a conversation between Christ and Nicodemus, and he talks about that, uh, the fact that in order to be, um, enter into the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again. And then he goes on to describe the Holy Spirit and how it's like the wind. He blows where he wishes. No one knows where it's going. No one knows where it's coming. Um, but the fact that there is a new birth that happens, and so the Holy Spirit must be the agent which causes that. You know, he, he's the one who imparts that faith. And I think that's what Christ is getting at in John chapter 3. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I'm just thinking of, uh, you know, it's spoken of in Romans 6.23 that... Uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal or eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that uh, is repeatedly mentioned as being something that is given to us apart from what we deserve. And I know that, uh, especially when you consider it in light of what Zach just read there from John chapter 3, that is something that really goes against the grain of a lot of contemporary evangelical understanding of the nature of faith. Uh, the Arminian understanding of faith, uh, that being that it is something that we have the free ability to exercise in and of ourselves apart from God. And I think that's something that tends to confuse a lot of people. 
rather than understanding that faith is the result of God's work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's a great point. In, in fact, and I was thinking of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 13, where it actually were, uh, the Spirit is called the Spirit of faith. Um, that, you know, the, the faith is, is what He produces uh, in the believer. And just kind of taking a little bit step out, and as you guys know, I have a lot of Lutheran friends and, and those that um, I acquaint myself with uh, pretty regularly. But I, in some of the conversations we've had, there's, there's um, some dialogue, specifically if, if you would refer to like a Hebrews chapter 4. So if you just listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this is what the text actually says. The text says, um, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division, the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And of course, we all really rally around that verse, but I know uh, at least a lot of Lutherans who would say that the word itself produces faith uh, if it's not resisted. Um, that, but when they say that, I would say they seem to be forgetting that it's only the Spirit who can make the Word uh, to produce that faith. It, it makes the Word, uh, if in a sense, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, um, it's, it's the Spirit's work in, in as He uses the Word. Now, this would kind of move us into the next category of what I want to talk about, which is that the Spirit has... Uh, uh, is the one who causes this faith to and produces this faith, but he uses the ordinary means, the ordinary means of word, sacrament, and prayer. And obviously, um, the Westminster Confession is going to stress that in, in great detail. So I just wanted to kind of have you guys work that out a bit. What do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit is going to produce faith using the ordinary means? Well, I think when you, when you read in 1 Corinthians, uh, just to take the Lord's Supper as a sacrament, or, if, you know, I'm a Baptist, so I'll call it an ordinance, but uh, when, when you've got uh, Paul speaking that we are partaking of the body of Christ. Um, there's a there's a mysterious sense where our faith is actually strengthened through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's not just a remembrance, you know, um, and it's not just looking forward. Although it is both those things, it's not only those things. It's also a present um, means by which our faith is uh, strengthened as we actually take the supper. And you know, I think that's why we would refer to it as a means of grace that uh, the, the Word and the sacraments are a means of grace, uh, that through them, grace is communicated to the believer. Uh, you know, I remember once saying that the, the object uh, and the content, really, of the Word and the sacraments is one and the same. It's the gospel itself. It's Christ himself. And so uh, I see that through that... Uh, it, it should be anticipated that this is not just something that is an empty ritual or that we're merely doing something out of some type of empty religious observance or, or merely just remembering, but that there is powerful grace communicated through both word and sacrament. Yeah, I, 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 I'm digging what you guys are saying here because I think— one of the things that we want to make sure that we're, we're communicating is, hey, look, these are the things God has provided as the primary way he is going to administer his grace. We would be foolish 
to not um, use those means that he has has prescribed. Um, but we recognize fully that it's the work of the Spirit who uses them and applies the faith right. to us. Now, we're not saying that God can't do whatever he wants. He's God. He's sovereign. But when it comes down to it, these are the primary ways. These are the ordinary, hence the word, ways he has promised to use them. So when we come back to this, this doctrine on saving faith, the Holy Spirit, there's a promise that the Holy Spirit w- will use these means. And yes. so therefore, we should make these uh, regular and uh, primary in our search for uh, uh, or to be administered the, the faith and the grace that we need. Am I, am I, you guys agree with me? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, coming from in the Baptist culture, and my church isn't so much like this, but I've seen it before to where, you know, sometimes a, a preacher will feel guilty if they don't actually give like a uh, an uh, elongated altar call at the end of a sermon because they think, well, if I don't do that, nobody will be saved, you know, I, if I don't give them an opportunity to do that. And so they're almost instituting uh, an altar call as like a means by which, you know, people are saved. And, uh, in, and and I'm not against giving people an opportunity to respond if they want to come forward and pray. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But there's also nothing wrong with preaching your sermon and then sitting down and then being confident in the fact that the word was spoken and the word is a means of grace and the word can, through uh, through the Spirit's power, be applied to people's hearts without you trying to urge people to make decisions or anything. That's actually right, right. It, it, because I think what we see oftentimes is people feel, I have to give this altar call. I get asked this question all the time because we don't do altar calls at our church, and uh, people say, well, how, you know, people who are used to that will say, well, how do people get saved? <laughs> and, and we, of course, we're, well, word and sacrament. God uses these things to apply uh, the faith um, that the the Holy as the Holy Spirit um, chooses to use them, and so it, it's it's very uh, important. I think that that we understand that what we're really stressing is these are the means God has prescribed that the Holy Spirit uh, will use regularly to administer the grace um, to the church to those who believe. Um, We're not saying there's anything uh, in the uh, elements themselves. We're we're not um, saying what maybe the Roman Catholics would say there, but we are saying that these are the means by which um, God has promised. So surely we would be foolish to not be practicing these in our church. Um, Right. I think, you know, as you've been talking about this, one of the words that has continued to come up is ordinary. You know, we speak of the ordinary means of grace. And what keeps popping up every time you say that in my head is that these are the ordained means of grace. Yeah. That uh, these, you know, God has promised that he will work through these things, that he will communicate grace to his church through these things, through word and through sacrament. And it's amazing to me through my own Christian experience of watching the things that man will contrive to try to get people saved. You know, you guys were just talking about altar calls. And and, and I've had the people ask me the same thing. Well, if you don't do altar calls, how are people going to get saved? And I'm like, man, I don't know. Probably the same way they got saved for the last 1900 years (laughs) before the altar call was ever instituted. Um, But I just watch the, the various things that people will try to do and all kinds of different stuff rather than trusting 
in the ordained or the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and trust that God is going to work through these. God is going to save people. God is going to strengthen and edify and build up his church through those ordained means. The Westminster Larger Catechism mentions it this way, these are the instruments of the Holy Spirit of of effectively and distributing grace as he wills. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism slightly says it different. Christ uses these sacraments not only to represent and seal, but also to actually apply the benefits of his redemption to believers. And so yeah. there, these are the things that um, the word, sacrament, prayer, these are things that um, we can go to, and as you said, Chris, that God has ordained that he will use to administer his grace. We don't need to wander around looking under uh, couch cushions for grace. Uh, we can go to where he's promised that it can be found, and we, sh- right. we should go to those places. And so when we come back to this doctrine of saving grace, th- there's a few uh, quotes I want to give here that I thought were really interesting, um, specifically about the fact of the ordinary means. Uh, William Greenville says, where the word of God is not expounded, preached, and applied, the people perish. And you think, that's a pretty powerful statement. So if you're in a church where the word of God is not expounded, preached, or applied, the the, people there are starving. They're starving because God has promised to use his ordinary means of grace. Another one that I I, I think applies uh, equally well is through Thomas Goodwin. He suggests that uh, good books and conversations may be helpful, particularly, he goes on to say, even in spiritual times of drought, but a steady use of these in the absence of preaching, because he focuses heavily on the preached word, uh, heavy use of conversations and books in the absence of preaching is akin to having a reliance on water pots in the place of rain. Can you imagine just having a few water pots and you're going to, to pour on your crops? That's not going to be enough water. It's, it, in a time of drought, that's going to be very, very, very dangerous, right? But uh, in in the the rain is what's needed, and obviously God has promised to use the preaching, especially the preaching when we talk about the Word. And I think in today's day and age, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but there's a lot of people saying, I don't need to be under preaching. I don't need to be in the community of saints. All I need is my books, my conversations, my Facebook page, whatever, and I'm going to be okay. And Thomas Goodwin would say, no way. You're, you're yeah. going to be starving. What are your thoughts on that, guys? I think that, first of all, we should probably address that there's a whole lot that comes forth from pulpits today that would be largely unknown as preaching by many of our predecessors. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of preaching that really isn't preaching, not biblical preaching. And uh, I, I think sometimes, you know, while I'm not completely against doing topical stuff, uh, I, I well, to summarize it, I came across a, a quote recently from uh, Bobby Jameson that says, Why expository preaching? Because God knows what his people need better than you do. <laughs> and I find too often in topical preaching that uh, people continue to be given, you know, easy, kind of uh, simple sermons over and over and over that really just hit the same kind of thing, and they— they're lacking the nourishment they should be getting from the full word expounded. 
And so uh, I think on the one hand, we could uh, we could talk about the nature of preaching itself. On the other hand, I like what you just said, though, Aaron, that you get people who think, well, I really don't need to sit under the word preached. And, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, I like listening to sermons, uh, but are you sitting under the preached word? Yeah. And, you know, I remember even in, you know, times past, as they would build cathedrals and uh, and churches that they would have a place that was elevated in the church where the the word would be preached forth from and that the picture of the entire thing was that everybody even the minister himself was under the word hmm. and uh it was just a whole different perspective from where we're at today yeah that's good doesn't this also give us um you know us three and every other human being, right? We're imperfect. And so as I teach from week to week and as you guys, you know, preach and uh, lead worship and everything, um, we can have confidence that the word is the means by which people can have faith regardless of our imperfections in our, in our, I don't know if I've ever taught a perfect Sunday school lesson is what I'm trying to say. Right. Right. And so even, even with my flaws, I know that if I accurately taught or preached the word, uh, I, I can I can sleep at night knowing that well, despite my imperfections, God's word was taught or preached accurately, and the Holy Spirit can apply that how He wants, and He's going to use that, uh, and or He's able to use that, you know, yeah. as a means by which He can impart faith to someone or strengthen someone's faith. Right. Um, yep. And it's interesting that even you talk about um, we've talked a lot about the word we've ta- we've mentioned the sacraments, but prayer itself is a means of grace. In that um, we see the disciples crying out uh, to Christ, which is is, is 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 a sense of their verbal prayer. Give us more faith. Help our help our unbelief. And so there's a sense in which prayer itself is is a means by which God is strengthening our faith. And in all these things, we can have confidence, like you said, Zach, that it's not just us or our ability, but we want to attach ourselves um, to those places we know where the Holy Spirit is going to work. Um, he's yep. promised to be to be at and, and, and working. Well, let's yeah, and e- even in, even in our imperfect prayers, the Holy Spirit aids those w- as well. You know, um, so even when we're praying and, and our words are not perfect, or even if our hearts are not completely right, the Holy Spirit even even uh, adds His you know blessing to that and makes it um, you know effective. Yeah, I mean, when we look at some of the questionable and even foolish methodology that man comes up with to try and get people saved and try and minister to the church. Uh, God is so great and powerful and wise and sovereign that he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Hmm. And he is gracious enough that he even still will save people, in not because of those messed up means and methodologies, but in spite of them. How much more should we expect God to work through the ordained means of grace? Right, right. Let's let's take this yet a step further. So when we talk about having faith um, and saving faith, one of the first uh, stops in this understanding um, uh, that we need to we need to kind of pause and reflect on is its faith in the Word of God. Period. 
right? Um, when somebody, when a Christian is one who has faith in the Word of God, um, I've often said it's not that they understand all of the doctrines, you know, because some people often say, well, how much does a person have to believe to be, uh, to be a Christian? It's, it's better answered sometimes what they're not denying, you follow right. what I'm saying? That they're not denying the scriptures. <laughs> Maybe they fully don't understand, but they're not going around denying, well, I don't really believe Jesus is God, or I really don't believe that Jonah was swallowed and, and, and lived in the, in, the, in the belly of a big fish. No, they're not denying those things. Do they have full understanding of how all that worked out? Absolutely not. But they're believing the word of God to be true. They, they, they have faith that what it says... Um, there to believe and teach. You guys with me on that? Yeah, I mean, you look at the Trinity is a good example of something like this because not, <laughs> I, I don't know if I've heard anyone explain it perfectly to where it 100% makes sense in our minds, right? But we know that uh, we need to have faith that it is true that God is a Trinity because we've got Deuteronomy, uh, God is one. And then you've got Jesus referred to as God and the Holy Spirit referred to as God and Jesus praying to the Father as God. And so what are we left with? But, well, we have faith that God is a trinity, but yet there's still one God. So it's one of those things where you don't have to have all the details perfectly worked out. But like you said, Aaron, it's what are you, what are you denying? That's what I'd be more worried about. Because are you denying that the Holy Spirit's God? Well, that's a problem. Are you denying that Christ is God? Well, that's a problem. You might not be able to explain how that all works, but if you have faith that uh, there are three persons, you know, um, that is... That's where it needs to be, even if you can't explain every little detail in it. I think, it, and we would even say that something like the Trinity is a truth of Scripture which cannot be fully comprehended, but which is to be received by faith. Right. And it's received by faith because it's declared in God's Word. And so right. as the Word of God declares these things, we believe them. And that's, mm -hmm. that is the, the first major stop as a, as a person is... is is uh, embracing Christianity is the Word of God is true. Uh, the liberals attacked the Bible. The liberals, uh, when I talk about liberals, again, we're not talking political liberals. We're talking, we're talking um, religious Christian liberalism, which basically said, well, we really can't believe that Jesus thought of himself as the Messiah. So we are on the quest for the real historic Jesus. And in that, they're already denying the Word of God. And so we see that these individuals who are denying the Word of God are not um, holding to Orthodox Christianity. They're not believing. They're not having and displaying saving faith. I was just going to say, I mean, three times in the New Testament, uh, in Romans, Galatians, and James, you find it stated that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I mean, that is the, the simple essence of faith is believing God, that what God has said, what he has spoken, what, what his word says, that we believe that. And, and so what I was going to say is, and building off of that, what does it look like when one trusts in, in the word of God? Well, there's a fearing of the word and a, a, a godly fearing. There's an obeying uh, of the word and applying a living out. And there's an embracing of uh, wholeheartedly of the word. And these are the fruits that we see of one who has saving faith, 
right? Because of their response to the very Word of God. And so we're looking at that, and I think that's where the book of James makes so much sense, that we're not saved by what we would do, but by what we do displays the faith we have, the, the salvation mm-hmm. we have obtained through the gift of, of what the Spirit has done through um, the work of Christ. So you guys want to speak a little bit to that, the idea of embracing, fearing, and obeying? I think as you start off in the uh, the Proverbs, you know, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, that as we recognize who God is from His Word, as God speaks, that the initial response to that should be a holy fear. Um that as we recognize who who God is, that we would come before Him in fear and trembling, that all of our boasting and, and pride has to be put aside and done away with as we come before God and as He speaks to us. And on the side of obeying, you know, it makes me think that uh, throughout the New Testament, you find the gospel stated as an imperative that you are commanded to believe, uh, you know, all the time. You know, it's not put out there as a an invitation, even though it is so often referred to in that way. Uh, the gospel is a command: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so, I think as we understand it that way, it, it gives us a little bit of a different perspective on how it is that God speaks to us and what our response is to be. That, you know, when we are, or when, when somebody rejects the gospel, um, they're not just turning down an invitation, they are turning away in rebellion to God's command. I think also when you see uh, the distinction made in James, you know, uh, the chapter 2, between like a dead faith and a living faith, that speaks to the same issue where you've got two people um, claiming to have faith in Christ, right? One of them is living it out. One of them is not. And so it, it, as far as, Aaron, you asked the question about obedience, true faith is always accompanied by obedience. Not perfectly, um, but it, and it's not that we're saved by the obedience either, but genuine faith always produces obedience. It's the fruit of that, right? And so that's how we need to understand passages like like James, when so many would go there and say, see, you know, it's faith and works. We would say, no, the reason the works are there is because they're a product of true faith. And that's one way to be able, you know, as pastors and teachers, to try to gauge where people are at. When If someone's claiming faith in Christ, but there's no obedience in their life, that's concern for us, you know, and, and we want to evangelize that person, not assume, well, you know, you probably have faith because you say you do or you pray to prayer, but we, we know that true faith is always accompanied by obedience. This goes... I think it was... Go, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, I think what we're getting at there at the heart of this is that uh, faith is more than just intellectual assent to particular facts concerning Christ and the gospel, and faith is more than lip service. Yeah, it, and, and it's interesting how faith, um, you know, it, it, it's the doctrine of justification, we're justified by faith alone, saving faith. Um, it's the work of the Holy Spirit as he gives it to us, he's using the ordinary means, but this faith is growing in us. Right, and, and we see that, and we see, as we've already referred to, the disciples recognizing their faith needed to grow and needed to uh, move along. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 talks about the growth from milk to meat, and that, that there should be this expectation of going from a little bit of faith to, to more and more of faith, and, and, and that we can even have full assurance in our faith. 
But this ties back to the doctrine we just talked about, which was sanctification. That faith is growing, and this is part of, uh, of our sanctification in the pursuit of being more and more devoted to God. Our faith is growing in and trusting His Word, and um, as a response to that, we're seeing more and more obedience. We're seeing more and more godly fear. We're seeing more and more of truly embracing what the Word is tells us to do or describes. And so there's more confidence. And this is the change that should be seen, as you talked about, Zach, in one who believes, as uh, yeah. James 2 is referring to. So, you know, I just came well, across this quote the other day from uh, Art Azurdia, who's a pastor, a preacher up in Portland, Oregon. And he said this, the word is the God appointed means by which you will be sanctified. Success in our mission is directly dependent upon the degree to which we are sanctified by the truth. Well, we would be remiss if we did not, if we talked all this time about saving faith and we uh, did not spend time talking about the object of saving faith. And that is obviously faith in Christ. Um, there are different ways that it's said. Um, have, uh, when we talk about uh, the the main idea of saving faith is Christ. It can be rephrased as receive Christ, as the way John says it, or uh, believe Christ, as the way Peter says it, um, or maybe even as the confession puts it, rest on Christ or accept Christ. Um, so there's all these different ways in which we express faith, and that faith faith's object is Christ. But let's really work that out for our listeners about the importance that Faith's object matters. Savings faith object matters. Uh, you know, just saying, I, I believe in Jesus. We would even say Paul in Scripture says there are many different Jesus. Uh, there, there are false Christs. Uh, there are different Gospels that can't save. And so the object of our faith is crucial uh, because faith in and of itself isn't what saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. And for that reason, it is critically important that we rightly understand who Christ is from the Word of God and that our faith is rightly appropriated. If it's just something that's, you know, a feeling, uh, that's, why the, that's why the object of our faith is what's crucial, uh, which is Christ. Because when you talk to, you know, a Mormon or something, and they say, I have faith in Christ, and they, they talk about a burning in the bosom. They have a genuine experience, and they feel like they know Christ. But then that begs the question, which Christ? You know, uh, Christ who's Lucifer's brother? That Christ won't save you. That's not the object of, of a saving faith, because that Christ doesn't exist. That's not the Christ of the Bible. And we would say that in love, obviously. Um, but, the, but when we go to you know, passages like Hebrews 12, Starting in verse 1, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's a historical, biblical Christ who not only is the object of our faith in the beginning, but he sustains us and he is the, uh, the author and the finisher, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so that's, that's only one Christ. That's not, uh, there's, not, there's not any wiggle room there, you know? No, and I, what I hear you guys saying, and I hear you saying it very clearly for our listeners, is that the fact that somebody has faith isn't what saves. 
It's the right. object right. of one's faith that saves. Um, there are many individuals that probably have stronger faith than I do um, in whatever object they're placing their faith in, because many of them would even be willing to uh, do some things uh, such as strap uh, dynamite and other things to their to their body for the cause of their faith. And in that um, in that pursuit, because they believe that will ultimately bring uh, uh the glory that they're that they're pursuing, but that's not saving faith. Uh, the good news for the for the Christian is it's not the amount of your faith that saves you; it's the object of your faith that saves you. And so, therefore, make sure that the object of your faith is Christ, because. His act of obedience, as we've talked about in the past, his passive obedience, nailing your sins to the cross, he is the only one who can save us. And the good news is that as long as you're attaching yourself to the places where Christ has promised to be preached, uh, the sacraments given, prayers uh, in Christ offered, the Holy Spirit will be present, <laughs> and He is the one who gives the grace and the faith that we so desperately desire. And, um, and, and you look at that, and it, it breaks my heart to think of how many people have gone, that I've known, that have gone through life and have displayed great amounts of faith, but the objects of their faith have only brought them to death, to judgment, to damnation not to hope, not to salvation, not to uh, glory, as uh, only Christ can do. So we've talked about a whole lot today in uh, <laughs> a very brief amount of time, everything from Bigfoot uh, to, uh, to the uh, awesome news of Christ. But as we kind of just look through this um, this topic, we've, we've hit uh, the importance of the Spirit's work in faith. We've talked about the ordinary means of, of, of grace, such as the Word, sacrament, and prayer. We've talked about the fact that, that real faith should, um, should mean that we take the Word of God seriously. It's faith uh, in what God has promised, um, and that when one truly believes that there is obeying, there is fearing, there is embracing of that word, but the object of that faith is Christ. Um, and we should expect our faith to grow. And all of that because it's the work of the Spirit in us. I don't know what more we can add to this discussion, guys, but um, I definitely want to ask if there's anything else you want to you wanna put in there before we, we wrap this up. I think just to throw this in there, I mean, this would be uh, this could be a whole other conversation in and of itself. But Christ as the object of our faith, like he's a living, reigning Savior now. That's why he is a is a good object of of our faith because he's he sustains our faith, right? And that makes me think about the difference you have between um, Peter and Judas, right? So they're both following Christ for a time, and yet Christ, as the object of faith of Peter, is interceding for Peter. And in fact, Satan demanded Peter's soul, and Christ intercedes for him, and thus Peter perseveres, and yet Judas does not. So the difference between the two is really that Christ is interceding for one and and not for the other. Um, and so Christ being the object of Peter's faith is, uh, you see that played out in the scriptures of why why Peter is ultimately persevering and, and is saved and, and Judas is not. 
And I think I would just uh, kind of circle back around to the one thing I said uh, near the beginning there, that as we talk about the sacraments, because we talked a lot about the Word today and uh, the power of the Word and the preached Word and so on, but also just to emphasize that the the real focus of the sacraments is one and the same, that as the sacraments uh, of baptism and of uh, the Lord's Supper are administered, that the gospel is presented in them as well. Uh, it's presented in a, a visible and a tangible way to us, and that that same power of God's Spirit is at work there to administer grace, even as he is through the preached Word, even as he is through prayer. I loved what one of my professors said when we were in seminary. He said, you know, everybody at this time, and you got to remember, I went to seminary quite a few years ago, but there was all this drama that was being done in, in churches. And he said, none of that drama can do what the drama God has given the church to do faithfully can do. He was referring to the sacraments. He, you know, the, the Lord's table is the perfect drama before us every Sunday that we do it as it displays and reminds us of Christ. Uh, baptism is a perfect drama of reminding us what Christ um, uh, is, 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 has done um, by the washing away of sin. And so you, you look at these things, and these are visual evidences uh, that he has given to communicate um, to the church that the Holy Spirit has promised to use through the Word, through the sacraments, through prayer, um, for the, the saving faith applied to the church. And man, that's, that's good news, guys. So, Amen. So I appreciate the time with you, and uh, I guess we'll be signing off, so see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.